If you're joining us for the first time, uh, it seems like every sermon starts off that way, so sorry about everyone that has to hear that every week, but for those who are new, that's for you. Uh, We are going through a study in the book of Numbers, and we have come to our sixth and final sermon where we will be covering 10 chapters. We've taken bigger chunks in this book, and we are examining God in his faithfulness. Now, when we say that God is faithful, what do we mean by God being faithful? If someone is faithful, they are true to what they say. They will do what they say. They will come through. And now, as we're looking at this study, we are seeing God has made promises specifically to Abraham, which sort of form a foundation to the whole Bible, And as you're reading these beginning chapters, you are wondering, is God going to be faithful? And so as you read Genesis, the promises are made, and then you move through Exodus, Leviticus, we're studying Numbers. Well, what were some of these promises? Two of them that are important to the book of Numbers, Genesis 12, verse 2, God said to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation. And so we're asking, will God be faithful and will a great nation come? And then Genesis 12, verse 7, just a few verses later, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So two promises are made, and by the time you get to Numbers, you have one of them being fulfilled. A great nation is here. And yet the book of Numbers is about a journey that takes off from Sinai, this nation leaving Sinai, this southern Sinai Peninsula, marching northeastward, east of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River, to a land that God has promised them. Now, will he open up the doors and bring them in? Part of the story is that while God is faithful, his people are not responding to him in belief that he is. And so what you have are people facing hard times and challenges in life, And instead of focusing in on him, they focus in on the hard times and challenges. So illustratively, you've seen the binoculars. You've put those bushnells up to your eyes. And there's that dial right in the center. And you take that thing and you bring it up and you dial in so that the lenses are focused. And you can laser in on maybe that mountain peak up there and see it a little bit better or that deer that's out in the field, and you can see how many points are on that rack, and and you're dialing in, that's what you're focused in on. When it comes to this journey, what has happened is the people of Israel, this first generation that has come out of Egypt, has begun to focus in on, dial in their hearts on the current challenges that they're facing. We're all going through current challenges right now. I don't think there'd be anybody silly enough this morning to come in here and say, I've got no challenges. No, we all face it. And what has happened is they've dialed in their focus, they've dialed in their hearts to the current challenges. And what happens when that is the focus? Well, I don't like my circumstances. I'm gonna grumble and I'm going to complain. And God who's over here, I'm not responding to him in faith and belief. Instead, I'm overflowing with what's going on in my heart. So confession, yesterday morning, I had one of those mornings. And I had to take the four kids to the open house here, show up as a pastor, and have a smile on my face. I got in the car, 
with the four kids. Chris was uh, some, some other place helping. I'm like, kids, I have to ask for your forgiveness. And I had lasered in on two of my kids in the morning, grumbling and complaining. They were my focus instead of God. And we all have that. Well, what God did is this nation that was constantly given over to grumbling and complaining, this generation, he says, I can't take you into the land. You're not dialed in on me. I'm faithful to you, but you are not responding in belief and trust in me. And so there is consequences to sin, and that's been part of this study. God said to this generation, we're going to take a two- to four-week trip and extend it to 40 years. And you grumbling, complaining generation, 20 and older, you're going to die off in the wilderness, and those 20 and under are going to be 60 on down in 40 years, and they are going to be led into the land. And what we see is this important lesson that God must be central to our lives. He is faithful. He must be central to our lives. He has to be the focus. So this morning, like I mentioned, we're flying over the last, actually, 11 chapters of Numbers. And we're going to see five ways in which God is faithful to his people. And my hope is that as we see God's faithfulness today, we will then respond. We will live by faith in him. Trials, challenges, people dialed in. Now we'll take that and say, okay, God, you are faithful. I'm dialing in and trusting you. All right, so how is God faithful in these chapters? Point number one, God preserves his people. God preserves his people. This has been a theme throughout the book of Numbers. In the very first chapter of Numbers, a census was taken of all the men, 20 and older, able to go to war. In chapter 1, verse 46, here was the final number. All those listed were 603,550. That was the generation that descended into unbelief, died off in the wilderness. Is the nation going to survive? Will God keep his promise? Well, God did some pruning, that's for sure. Our opening text leads us to verse 51. Verse 51 says, this was the list of the people of Israel. How many people? Verse 51 of chapter 26 says, 601,730. Has God been faithful to his promise? Has he kept his people? Has he preserved them? The answer is Yes. God is faithful. One of the truths that we have mentioned in previous sermons is that God will preserve his people. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that doesn't mean that every local church is going to be preserved until Jesus comes back. In fact, Some local churches need to be pruned and cut down because of unbelief. Five out of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, God comes to them and says, repent, 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 and if you don't, I might snuff you out. However, the true church of Christ, the universal church, which is the sum total of all Christians around the globe, will be built 
Christianity is not going anywhere. And when you think about Jesus saying those words to Peter and the disciples, and then Matthew writing that book a few decades later, you remember they're living under what empire? The Roman Empire. They are facing religions, the the Judaism that is left, and the paganism in the Roman Empire. And it probably felt like both the false religions and the secularism, if you will, of that day was just sucking people up. Is this little little body of Christianity going to survive? Through the decades of that first century, then through the centuries, Christ continued to build his church. And one of the things that we need to remember this morning and be assured of in terms of God's faithfulness, folks, is that religions and secularism will not destroy the church of Christ. Not even death coming into people's lives, not even persecution will destroy Christ's church. Generation by generation, he will build his church up until the last stone has been placed in his spiritual house, until the last person has been put in place. And when you think about Christ's church, this is his bride, another another picture for us. And he's coming back to gather his bride unto himself, a bride of splendor. Christ will not fail in coming back for his bride. So when we think about God being faithful and preserving his people, being part of Christ's church means that we are part of the one thing that will endure throughout all of the ages. Everything else will fall away like chaff. Christ's church will be forever and Since Christ will be faithful, it gives us hope. It gives us boldness. It turns us to this reality that these folks over here need to know that Christ is faithful and he's coming back for his bride. We talked about the foolishness of the gospel. It is foolishness, but God in his faithfulness is ready And he is active in taking that foolishness into the lives of people, saving them, and bringing them into his church. Be encouraged, even in your evangelism. Christ will build his church. God is faithful. He will preserve his people. Chapter 27. We see another way in which God is faithful. God provides a shepherd for his sheep. Two weeks ago, we saw that sin has consequences. Moses went to the rock, and instead of speaking to the rock, he got a chippy attitude, took his staff, and beat it twice up against the rock. And as a result, God brought discipline into Moses' life. There are consequences for our sins. We have to live with those consequences. Moses' consequence, he will not be able to enter into the promised land, which means... These people, God's people, need a leader. And so in chapter 27, look down at verses 15 through 18. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Who's going to be appointed? Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? That congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. 
So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. So Moses, led by God, is told, here's the leader. I will not let my people be like sheep who have no shepherd, wandering around and susceptible. So there's a man, and his name is Joshua. We have a few Joshuas in here. Interestingly, in Hebrew, his name is pronounced Yeshua. If you were to pronounce Joshua in Greek, it would be Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. What's the other characteristic about him? His name is Joshua, but he also has the Spirit of God upon him. And so Joshua is brought into this position of leadership because God is faithful. He will provide a leader for his people. And the book of Joshua shows us how this man is used by God to lead the people into the land. God continues to be faithful to his people. Yes, he provides shepherds to the church in the form of pastors. But there is a greater shepherd who has come. His name is Jesus. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yeshua. In Greek, it's pronounced Jesus. And it's upon him whom the Spirit of the Lord resides as we see his ministry beginning in the Gospels. We've been waiting for this leader to come to God's people. His people need a leader. They're like sheep needing a shepherd. So 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 tells us how this shepherd has led us. He himself bore our sins all of our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He's a shepherd who has lain down his life for the sheep. Verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Folks, you have a shepherd this morning who is caring for your soul. He's an overseer tending to you, carefully leading his flock along. Another passage that comes up is Revelation 7, verse 17. For the lamb, notice he knows what it's like to be a sheep. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb here in Revelation 7 is now the shepherd. And he's going to guide them into springs of living water. Notice the the refreshing picture there. He will bring those who have endured. Revelation 7, it talks about saints coming through times of tribulation and sufferings. And he is going to bring them through to springs of living water. Jesus' sheep will have rest. He is that kind of leader who can bring his people to the point where they will have rest. And it was somebody earlier in the sermon who mentioned the Lord is our shepherd. And because he is our shepherd, what is the next phrase? You shall not. Everything that we need is wrapped up in the shepherd himself. We follow him, and as we dial in and follow him, he causes us to lie down in green pastures. He restores our souls. 
And he will see us all the way through to the end where he will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. So you have no reason to fear evil. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. This is our shepherd. And God here in the book of Numbers is saying, I am going to be bringing a shepherd to my people. And he's a picture of the great shepherd who's going to come, the great shepherd whom we know, the great shepherd whom we're singing about, the great shepherd in whom we trust. God is faithful. He has provided us with a shepherd this morning. Number three, we see that God is faithful and that he governs our worship. This is chapters 28 and 29. God is faithful in that he gives us instruction on how to approach him. Numbers 28, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And then the chapter takes off, if you've got your eyes on, your, on the word there, the chapter takes off on how to worship God, particularly on the daily offerings that we're giving at the tabernacle and then the temple. He shows his people how to bring sabbatical or Sabbath offerings. He shows them how to bring monthly offerings. And then, as you continue on through chapter 28, the second half, and into chapter 29, he begins talking about the feasts and festivals. In, in 28 and 29, in our ESV, there's five paragraphs that are sectioned off. There were seven, and two of them are kind of mashed into some of the five here. Many of the feasts, many of these holidays or festivals would go on for several days. They were like extended holidays. Kids get maybe a week or two at Christmas for their Christmas vacation. We're just starting summer break. Man, it's great, isn't it? We just came off Memorial Day, a day for us to dial in on something and say, man, we remember those who gave their lives for our freedom. Well, here's Israel, and God is saying, I'm giving you rhythms throughout the year, and yet the purpose of these festivals is so that you would dial in your attention on me. God is faithful by showing his people how to live their lives before him and how to be in fellowship with him daily, weekly, monthly, holidays and festivals here. We know that those offerings that were given at the tabernacle and then the temple, those lambs that were given, those bulls that were sacrificed, the rams that were slaughtered, we know that all of them have come to an end because Jesus is the last sacrifice. Hebrews 9 verse 26 says this, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Jesus surrendered his life as a sacrifice to God as a payment and satisfaction for our sins. So folks, we'll be sprinkling this throughout the sermon. I don't know where you come from. I don't know where all of you come from. But if you are under the weight of having to perform acts of righteousness and obedience and goodness in order to have any kind of relationship with God, that's what we call legalism. 
where I can do things in order to earn a relationship, earn favor with God. And we'll talk about obedience as necessary. And yet what you have to come back to is all of those daily offerings, weekly, monthly festivals, those were means of coming to God and enjoying fellowship with him, living life before him. And they were all pointing to one person, Jesus Christ. And here Jesus comes and Hebrews 9 says, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so this might be another way of looking at it. By trying to earn favor with God, because maybe preachers have kind of rammed that, or maybe you just took that away from something. By trying to earn favor with God, in fact, what you're doing is actually making little of the sacrifice of Christ. He died in our place so that he could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so when we enter into the presence of God in prayer, when we are coming into him with communion and fellowship, we come to him boldly, not based on our own works, but we come saying, I believe I have this sacrifice in my, it's Jesus, I've laid hold of him. He's the only means by which I can come to you. He took the punishment for my sin. You gave, you've given him, given me his righteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here it is. And the blood of Jesus, his son, notice the present tense there, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus continually cleanses us, meaning that the sacrifice of Christ, which occurred at a point in time in history, is continually effective for you today. It's the sacrifice that we come, if you will, in front of God saying, I embrace, I believe in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for my sins. This is God's faithfulness. And yet, there is a way now for us to live in appreciation for the sacrifice that he has given to us. So, do we have things that we can give to the Lord? Do we have sacrifices that we can offer him? Let me give you four. We have our lives as a sacrifice to God. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercy that's demonstrated in Christ, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The sum total of whom you are, you can say, God, I give myself to you. We bring a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Can I just say, that's one of the reasons why we sing every Sunday morning. It's a means of us praising God. And I love it when we can come together and I hear people coming with sincere hearts, not just words falling out of our mouths with a tune, but coming and saying, God, I'm singing to you and I acknowledge what you've done for me. Let this be a sacrifice of praise to you. It's a beautiful thing. Number three, we offer a sacrifice to God through our love for others. Again, here's what he's done for us in Christ. And now, God, how can I worship you? I want to acknowledge you. I want to dial in on you. Hebrews 13, verse 16. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Share what you have. We give with our finances. It's another sacrifice. Philippians 4, verse 18. Paul said, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. So he's going around the Mediterranean starting churches. He says, I have, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, and notice the language that he gives it, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So our regular financial giving, which God leads us into, is a means of coming before the Lord and saying, thank you, I want to give this to you. This all ignites in our heart. Um, I should say the sacrifice ignites in our heart a desire. When someone has done something kind to you, like rescuing you and redeeming you out of slavery, there is a response that should be coming out of the heart saying, yes, I want to give. God is faithful to his people. He is showing his love through the sacrifice. That sort of sent me down a little rabbit trail, so forgive me if this doesn't connect the dots all the way with you, but as we see God's sacrifice, he's saying to his people, I love you. Do you ever struggle with rejection or the fear of rejection? Do you see that God is saying, I am faithful to you. I love you. Look at the sacrifice that I've given to you. That's, that is the picture. That is the shout from heaven saying, I will not reject you. Many people experience the pain of rejection from the past. Some of you might be going through the pain of just feeling rejection right now. Some think about fears in terms of the future. You have to see God is faithful to his people. And breaking through that, that thought of God has rejected us. We're out in the wilderness to die. That's the message that you hear from the grumbling generation in Numbers. God is coming back and saying, don't you see my love? Look what I've done. This morning, you need to know you are loved beyond what any person could ever love you, that love coming from God to you through his son, Jesus. Don't fear rejection. By welcoming Jesus into your heart by faith, you will find security. But take those binoculars and dial in on him. If it's the circumstances, the people, the trials, you're going to fear. Trust God that he is faithful. Number four, God is just. God is just. This is chapters 30 to 32. Justice includes both mercy and judgment. A judge extends both mercy and judgment. God's justice is seen in chapter 30. In chapter 30, if you're looking at this from a big you know, 30,000-foot view, you see the headings here, men in vows for two verses, and then women in vows to the end of the chapter. Vows were absolute commitments to God. 
However, vows were often made during times of desperation. I need to get out of a jam. So God, if you just get me out of this jam, then I will commit this to you. Just get me out of the present. You remember Hannah's vow, barren womb. She made a vow to God, an honorable vow. If you provide me with a child, I will wholeheartedly dedicate him to you. On the flip side, we read about foolish vows, and Jephthah was one of those fools. Judges 11, he's facing an enemy, and he says, God, if you will just help me win the battle over this enemy, then when I return home, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will give as a living sacrifice to you. I will sacrifice that to you. Comes home, and the first thing that comes out of his house is not a thing, it's a person, and it's his daughter. Vows can be made during times of desperation, and some vows can be very rash. Most of chapter 30 is about vows that if a woman makes, a leader in her life can come alongside and say, no, that vow can be rescinded. If she's not married, her father can rescind the vow. If she is married, her husband can rescind the vow. And you ask, well, what's the point of all of this? One scholar, Jim Hamilton, he says this, the picture here is that leadership must exercise mercy. Leadership should be used to protect those who are vulnerable. And then if that's the case, then these women are being protected by their fathers or by their husbands, and it's a demonstration of God's mercy in the lives of the women. Chapter 31, you go from mercy to judgment. In chapter 31, you remember the scene from a couple weeks ago where the prostitutes came, the religious prostitutes came and lured people away from Israel and there was all kinds of sexual sin that took place. Well, here in chapter 31 comes judgment. God tells Moses to go and destroy the Midianites. In chapter 32, you see the blend of judgment and mercy. There's three nations or three tribes here. There's Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Remember, if you can picture this on your mind, the land, the promised land, is on the west side of the Jordan River. And they are on the east side right now getting ready to cross the Jordan. They're, they're positioned, if you will, there. And Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh come to Moses and say, hey, this looks like a pretty good place. Let us just settle here in this area. And Moses gets a little ticked at him. It's a form of judgment. However, the Lord intercedes with mercy, and he says, no, these tribes can have this land only if their men of war come into the land and defeat the enemies whenever we go to war. So they were able to stay in the land. Verse 23, but if you will not do so, if you will not keep this agreement, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. And so here you see God saying, I'll be merciful. Go ahead. Stay here. However, if you sin against me, be sure your sin will find you out. There is judgment. And so the point of chapters 30 to 32 is that God is just in all things. He offers mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 says that God is rich in mercy. And yet, God is just in that he brings judgment to those who spurn his mercy. 
And so here's a question. Can we truly appreciate God's mercy without contemplating his judgment? I think it's good for us to go through these books of the Bible that give us illustrations of what God's judgment is like. It can be graphic sometimes. And you know what we do? We respond and we say, man, that's harsh. That is so good for us, folks, to understand the holiness of God. It's not just that we have committed sin. It's the one whom we sin against that makes sin so heinous. And so God, a holy, almighty God, full of mercy and full of judgment, will be just. And the obvious problem is that we all deserve judgment because we have all sinned against God. And we see over and over again, here comes his mercy. He mercifully provides a substitute for us in Christ. Christ takes the judgment. So justice, God's justice comes together at the cross where mercy is poured out for those who have sinned and judgment is poured upon Christ. And and the question is like, will you appreciate the justice of God? Will you appreciate it insofar that it is demonstrated at the cross in Christ? And we're saying, wow, I see both mercy and judgment there. God, thank you for your mercy to me. God is faithful. He will be just, honoring his promises of mercy to those who will receive them. And he will be just in honoring his promises for judgment to those who spurn his mercy. God is faithful. Trust him. Last, God is our hope. God is our hope. When we talk about hope in the Bible, we're talking about the confident expectation that he will meet us in the future with what he has promised in the present. Present promises right now, future expectation. So chapters 33 to 36 are this confident expectation of what? It's the confident expectation of entering into the land. In chapter 33, look at verse 51. He says, Speak to the people of Israel, and notice the hope here. He says to them, not if you, but when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. Notice the hope here. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. Do you see the promises made in the present with the expectation that it will be fulfilled in the future? Chapter 34, it just keeps building the hope because in chapter 34, we won't go through all of this, but there are boundaries that are given to the land. This land will be yours. Here are the boundaries, here to the north, here to the west, here to the east, and here to the south. Chapter 35 keeps building on the hope. Cities of refuge for those who commit involuntary manslaughter. Here's where it is. You can run to these cities of refuge and you can have hope that you will be safe and protected in those. Those will be in the land. And then chapter 36, some of you may have wondered, why did you skip over Zelophehad earlier? All right, Zelophehad. This is more confident hope and expectation. 
Zelophehad had several daughters. The daughters had no husbands. The daughters received land from the dad who was dying. And so the idea was, well, if we get married to other men from other tribes, then the boundaries of the tribe that you have given to us in the land, those boundaries are going to shrink, and that land is going to be given to other tribes. And so what God does in this chapter here is, oh, here are the rules. We'll, we'll overcome this problem. And the daughters of Zelophehad, if you marry somebody, here's the rule. You have to marry somebody in your tribe so that the land that's allotted to this tribe will continue in this tribe, you know, in perpetuity there. So chapter 36, verse 13. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel Notice where they are now in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. You start off the beginning of Numbers. We're down in Sinai wondering, are we going to get there? Two to four week journey takes 40 years. And now here we are staged right outside the promised land. God is fulfilling his promise. He is being faithful. He is our hope. Is he your hope? Let's finish up going to 1 Peter. Take your Bibles and go to the back of 1 Peter. Back of the Bible to 1 Peter. We're going to look at two passages, one in 1 Peter, one in 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We've been talking about dialing in our attention. Well, here's something that you can dial in this week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Is God going to fulfill his promises to you? Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action. There's that idea of bring your thoughts in. The trials, the problems, the people that you might be focusing on. Move that attention away from there. Prepare your mind for action. And being sober-minded, here he goes, set your hope Set your confident expectation fully on this. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back and you say, okay, God, are you faithful? Is that going to happen? You think about a little kid who's just waiting for his father to come home from a trip. When's dad coming back? When's dad coming back? When's dad coming back? I just want him to come back. Is he going to bring a present with him? All that kind of stuff. Set your hope fully on the grace that will come because Jesus is coming back. And that translates into a present reality. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. He goes on through the rest of that. Scoot over to chapter or Second Peter chapter two, verses thirteen, following. God is our hope. We have confidence that his promises that he's made to us will have a future reality. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I know many of us are kind of getting our cages rattled because what's happening in our community, it's sinful, it's wrong, it's an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so what do you do? Well, you can dial in all of your attention 
on the circumstances. Don't do that, folks. You're going to be a grumbler and a complainer. So much of it has already happened, hasn't it? They're bringing what to Grand Haven next week? They're doing what? Super close-up view. Oh, Christians. No, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be holy. Look what we're waiting for confidently. New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's just. He's got everything. God is faithful. Let me close with Exodus 34, verse 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, what do we do? We go away trusting that God is faithful. So, May the Spirit of God enable us to repent of sin and dial our hearts into God because he is everything.